Welcome to episode seven of the Missing Stone podcast. I first saw how much urban wildlife refuges can provide a community while conducting much of my master's thesis research at Boyd Hill Nature Preserve in St. Petersburg, Florida. This was the first time I saw what an urban wildlife refuge can really provide for the native wildlife, the local community, and conservation research. That is why I was so excited to speak with Rachel Hutchins, Executive Director of the Bluff Lake Nature Center in Denver, Colorado. Bluff Lake Nature Center is both Denver's largest open space managed for native habitat and the only nonprofit nature center in Denver. We discussed Rachel's unique path into conservation, starting as an educator at the Missouri History Museum before finding her way into conservation over time. We then talk about the opportunities Bluff Lake offers its local community, the human wildlife challenges that arise from running an urban nature center, and how visitation to Bluff Lake has increased drastically since COVID. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back, everyone, to the Missing Stone podcast. I'm so excited to be joined today by the executive director of the Bluff Lake Nature Center, Rachel Hutchins. How are you doing today, Rachel? I'm doing great. Excited to talk to you today. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. I'm really excited to talk to you for several reasons. One, the fact that you're at an urban nature center is just so exciting for me. Those That category, or I guess category is the wrong term, but I've, I did most of my master's research at an urban nature center, so I feel really connected to what they're able to provide the community. But I'm also really excited because you didn't necessarily start your path thinking you'd get into environmental education or conservation. So I'm really excited for these first few questions because it's going to be very different <laughs> than what I've asked so far. So yeah. to begin, I'd love to ask you, what was that moment that made you want to either get into or switch into environmental education and conservation? So I grew up in Boulder and I had lots of outdoor experiences growing up, lots of hiking, playing outside, going in a creek. And I moved away from Colorado for a number of years and came back. And I had been working in the informal education field, doing a lot of work around getting kids um, into spaces that they don't typically feel welcome or they haven't had the opportunity to go. And I realized it kind of hit me for the first time that nature was a place like that. For a lot of kids in the Denver area, they don't think of nature being something that is for them. It's a thing that white people do on the weekends. They go up to the mountains and they have a cabin. Um, so I really got interested in this idea of how can we um, help make nature more accessible to every community member. That's awesome. So in switching over like you did a little later, what were some of those early career moves you made that set you up to be able to so easily transition? I My degree in school was in history, and I thought I always wanted to be a teacher. Um, history is not a degree that you can do much other than being a teacher or a lawyer. Uh, so I started working at a history museum in St. Louis, which I did for a number of years. And I fell in love <laughs> with informal education, which is really kids outside of classroom settings, um, field trips, summer camps, family programs, 
uh, partially because you get them for a short amount of time and then they go back home, um, partially because they're usually really excited to be there. And um, I loved working at the History Museum. Um, I forget what your question was. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Just the ways that you've been able to set up because you were able to transition right. pretty easily over into environmental education. Yes. So yes. what what moves did you make that allowed you to be able to make the decision to change, but then also to actually be able to change? Because I think that's a difficult factor for a lot of people. Right. Yes. Okay. Totally. So, um, you know, working at a history museum, I don't know everything about history and I really had mentors and our educational philosophy at the museum was all about inquiry-based learning and that the kids are leading the program, that a good facilitator is just asking the right questions that really get kids to dig in and investigate. It's not a facilitator as a, an expert spewing facts and trying to, you know, instill all this information in the kids. So I was very easily able to transfer those skills of what do you see here? What do you see that makes you say that? What do you think this might be? Asking questions of kids um, in the nature setting, just not in a museum. And I did not have a strong background in scientific knowledge or Colorado ecology. I learned very quickly. Um, an early memory I have is on a field trip, a big flock of pelicans landed at Bluff Lake and the kids were all excited, pelicans. And I was like, no, we don't have pelicans in Colorado. Um, and they opened up the field guide and showed me like that we have pelicans in Colorado. And my mind was blown. But that to me was a perfect teaching moment because the kids got to be the experts. They were able to show me because I had shown them how to use a tool like a field guide. They were able to show it to me in the field guide. And that gives them the agency to want to come back into nature and do those things again. They don't need the expert there because clearly I'm not an expert. <laughs> That's fascinating because at my current role, I've been doing a lot more of the informal side of things. And I I taught for two years uh, high school biology. So I had that formal side and I didn't realize how much of that informal really is both letting the kids teach you, but also what you just did right there, using that power of storytelling to mm. tell or to share what you're trying to share with students or with guests in general. And so yeah. it really is powerful that well done informal education is such a powerful tool. Yeah, I I loved it. And it really helped with us recruiting new volunteers. I think people think that they have to be an expert and be able to identify every single plant that's there um, at the site. But kids love, they learn so well when you can model paths, thinking paths with them. And how could we figure that out? Does it look like anything similar you've seen? What are some tools we could use? Let's look at our field guide. Let's pull out our phone and use iNaturalist. Um, let's figure it out together. And I love the creativity you see with students. We had, we were working with fourth graders recently and asked them to come up with ways to help a fox cross through a community from one place to another. And kids were building fox gondolas and using <laughs> pheromones to attract them in. And just the creativity of these students is 
underrated to a certain extent. Definitely. Their their minds aren't bound yet by like what we think of as logic um, and all the limitations. So definitely. So when you transitioned back into Bluff Lake Nature Center, you mentioned that pretty quickly you moved from education to executive director. And that was kind of a big and difficult leap. So I'd love to hear you kind of dive into that. Yeah. So I had been working at the History Museum Science Centers. I was in the nonprofit world for about six years at the time. Um, but those were very big organizations. And coming to Bluff Lake, which at the time had like three and a half staff members, um, I even started as part time, but became full time. Uh, when the executive director left, there was an opportunity. I think the board of directors who hired me saw the potential of bringing in someone who had that focus on education. All of our former executive directors, or a majority of them, had a conservation background because that's what Bluff Lake needed at that time when we were really focused on restoration efforts and getting the site into a great condition. But now our switch had really been, what can we do? How can we make this more accessible to the community? What are programs we can host? So I had kind of the skill set and mindset to be able to lead Bluff Lake into that phase. Um, I did not have any of the training. Um, I had no idea how to manage a budget. I had never managed that many staff members um, or worked with a board of directors. So there was a large learning curve. Luckily, I had really great mentors and people who believed in me and saw my potential and also loved Bluff Lake and wanted to make sure that it continued to succeed. And they were able to help me through that first year. <laughs> Did you have a strategy when approaching it in terms of emphasizing your strengths or while you tried to grow your other skills or did you have a strategy or did you just kind of pick it up as you went? Right. Um, yeah, that's a good question. And something I've thought back on, I think I pretty much winged it. I had a lot of humility and told myself all the time, you know, Rachel, it's not like you were presenting that you had all the skills of an executive director. So they can't expect you to be the perfect executive director. And I knew that I needed to ask a lot of questions. So maybe I went back a little bit into my inquiry-based learning mind of who are all the people that I can bring in to help me get better. And no ego, this is a team that has really helped me. Um, looking back on it now, as I've thought more of myself as a leader, there are certain traits and characteristics of leaders that you think of, um, that they are really influential, great public speakers, visionaries. And I don't think of myself as any of those things, but I've done some really great trainings about strengths and how you can find your strengths and play them to your best, to your benefit and lead teams based on your strengths. And I think really that's looking back exactly what I did. I, I knew where my limitations were, and I brought in a good team and asked the right questions. So then what were the goals you set as you entered this new position? What were you 
really wanted to achieve? Um, I wanted to be able to pay my staff every two weeks. That was a big goal. <laughs> and I know that feels like a small thing, but in the nonprofit world, especially for small nonprofits, cash flow of when you're getting your funds versus when they're being spent is all over the place. And I think I really wanted stability for our staff because maybe because I had been a staff member and I felt that instability, I wanted to set up better structures for having um, an employee manual and better HR practices and financial structures and more transparency. So I think my goal was, my goal always in every position I've ever had is to leave it better than when I came so that when the next person comes in, they are not in the position that I was in. <laughs> um, and really that to me is the humility that you should have as a leader. It shouldn't be that I'm irreplaceable and the only person that can do this job. It should be, how can I set this job up so that um, not anyone can do it, but that it's doable and people can find everything. And yeah. <laughs> that definitely makes a lot of sense. And you explained some of the things that you didn't know how to do when you entered this position, but what were the biggest surprises you had as you entered? I think some surprises were just the the folks like working with the community and the public and things that you wouldn't think about. Um, a random example that just came to mind is that we, our phone number, you know, Bluff Lake Nature Center, publicly available, and people call all the time with all kinds of nature questions. Um, I found a squirrel in my backyard. What do I do with it? It's injured. Here's a deer. And they just look up and find Bluff Lake. And my favorite story was a woman was on a plane at DIA and she called me and she said there was a rabbit like out on the tarmac and could I come get it? Um, and I was just like, what? what world do you think that that I would just be able to walk out onto the tarmac? <laughs> she was very insistent. Um, so I get dealing with the public and just all kinds of random questions, but it's also a really fun way to engage with people about how they connect with Bluff Lake, what they're looking for out of a space like Bluff Lake. Um, when they see the name Bluff Lake Nature Center, what does that mean to them? So Working with the public has definitely been a little bit of a surprise because I think I was sheltered from that in previous roles, not being like the the top person that answers those kinds of calls. Um, also, maybe working for a small nonprofit as the executive director, I didn't realize how much pressure would be on me as an individual that I'm the one that goes to bed every night thinking about Bluff Lake. Um, and I don't know if there's anyone else that does. So, cause my board is wonderful, but they all have jobs and families and my staff is wonderful, but they, again, they're staff and they have jobs or they have families and I'm the one that kind of the buck stops with me. So I think I was a little surprised to find out how lonely it is being at the top. <laughs> and that's a really interesting point that, I don't know if I've ever really thought of, but I'd love to just hear 
if you have any advice for people who find themselves in that position, how do you cope with that? Yeah, I was able to get through it by finding other people in my situation. So other small nonprofit executive directors, um, people who understand the same situations that I'm going through, people who are working on the same types of grants as me or working in the same communities as me. So I have a great network that I've built thanks to some uh, trainings that I've done, but also just, you know, going to events and meeting people that are people that I can call and say, hey, I'm having this HR problem. Um, Or let's go get coffee and let's just talk about our boards or about how are you going to make your budget work this year? Um, So that has really saved me finding that community. I can imagine having a community helps in so many situations. And that I feel like is a great way to transition to being in the center of a community as Buff Lake Nature Center, Mm -hmm. what do you feel an urban wildlife refuge could and should provide its surrounding community? I think the beauty of urban wildlife refuges is it's, they're great examples of how people in nature can coexist and really help each other. Um, Bluff Lake, all of the water in our lake comes from storm drains in the neighborhoods around our site. So we are naturally doing water filtration of all of that storm water comes into our site, goes through our cattail marsh, gets cleaned up, goes to our lake, and then it um, overflows into our creek. So we are serving a function for the neighborhood of cleaning their water. But we're also able to have a lake, which is allows us to have fish and birds and all of those species and a really robust habitat. So I think there's this really strong conflict that people see between humans and nature, but there are so many examples of how they can really work successfully together. And Bluff Lake is a great example of that. And the community around us has really embraced that and views Bluff Lake as their backyard, as the place that they go every afternoon and let their kids blow off some steam and run around um, or the place that they take their run every morning. So it's not so far away that it's a huge destination. It's more integrated into their daily lives. And that's where I'd love to ask you because it's, I'm sure it's always been integrated into their daily lives, but we've seen such an influx during COVID and after of people using these outdoor open spaces. Has Bluff Lake seen that influx? And how has that impacted the nature preserve? But how, how has that also benefited the, the surrounding community? Yeah, we have had a huge increase in visitation. Pre-pandemic, we were averaging about forty or 50,000 visitors a year. And now um, we're averaging 85,000 visitors a year. So there's several factors that go into that. It's not all one thing. And that's over the course of several years. But um, the site of Bluff Lake is where the former Stapleton Airport used to be. We were um, a part of that airport. And I can go into the history later if you would like. But for a long time, all surrounding us was the former runways and it was just kind of fields. And then the neighborhood that is called Central Park now, formerly Stapleton, 
really built up around us. So over the last 10 years, we went from having 15 years fields surrounding us to having houses literally right against our property line. Um, We also have factories um, next to our property line. There's a women's prison that is our northern neighbor. And so we are surrounded by people and those people are looking for places to go. So partially the number increases just because there's so many people so much closer, the development in our region. But also COVID did bring shine a light on places like Bluff Lake when people were told not to travel more than 10 miles to recreate. All of those Coloradans who did go up into the mountains previously every weekend and everyone who was trapped inside their apartments and homes was looking for places to go outside and Googled and found places like Bluff Lake and then fell in love. And they, I think, fell in love with the accessibility of it, with how close it is to them and that they didn't have to make a big deal out of traveling to get there. So those things have really increased our visitation, as well as maybe, well, definitely increased programming on our side. So hosting more opportunities, more diverse opportunities in things not just science-related, but um, trying to do more like mindfulness programs and tapping into all the different ways that nature can benefit people. And I want to dive into the education side in a little bit, but first, how has that influx of people impacted the management side in that, terms yeah. of especially wildlife management? That That's a huge challenge for us, um, and but also a benefit because, again, I think it highlights how we can all work together. Um, one example is that the fields surrounding our site prior to development were perfect habitat for prairie dogs. And as those houses were built and that development grew, the prairie dogs um, were looking for new habitat and found Bluff Lake, where we previously hadn't had very many prairie dogs at all. So now we have a large prairie dog population and have been working over the last 15 years to find ways to manage that in a stable way so that we can continue to host a happy, healthy prairie dog population, while also managing for all the other species on site, like all of the deer and um, birds. So it's presented challenges because people push wildlife in different ways. Um, People all the time are calling us because there's foxes in their backyard and they think that we can do something about it. Um, (laughs) So I just tell them, you know, that's what living along a greenway is like, because Bluff Lake is not an isolated piece of wilderness in the city. It is a part of the Sand Creek Greenway, which runs 13 miles from the South Platte um, in Commerce City through Denver and into Aurora. So when you live along a greenway, there are going to be, that's where animal traffic is. And it's a good thing that you're seeing those animals. Um, People just need to learn how to drive around them. But other impacts that we've had, of course, things like trash on site has increased. All of that stormwater that's coming in as those became neighborhoods that we find all kinds of stuff in our storm drains, basketballs, oxygen tanks, all kinds of things that people leave, dog poop. So some of it is uh, we do some community and public education about 
cleaning up after your pets because when that um, dog poop goes into the system, that then has an impact on water quality. Um, also, when people fertilize their yards, that has a big impact on water quality. But it also means that we've got all these people who are donors and participate in our programs and are able to share about Bluff Lake and can grow up having a space where they can be outside. Um, and we, I really believe that unless people have that moment in their childhood where they like click with nature, where they get to catch crawdads or they get to like see how many rocks they can fit in their pocket. Um, it's a lot harder for them to even think about careers in the outdoors or want to vote for people who care about protecting the outdoors. So spaces like Bluff Lake are super important for protecting places like Rocky Mountain um, National Park and the Rocky Mountain Arsenal Wildlife Refuge, which is our neighbor. And I'm rambling and have left your question a little bit. <laughs> no, that's awesome. I mean, you touched on so many different things in terms of that management side. And that's also a great transition because you talk about how important it is for both the community to be able to learn about things like what they put in their storm drains and cleaning up after themselves, but then also for these kids to get these early experiences. And mm -hmm. I have to admit, I knew you offered a lot of environmental education, but digging in before we talked, I didn't realize just how many after school programs were being offered, how many mini camps, summer camps. You guys do so much education for the surrounding community. How has that built over the last few years? And what areas are you most excited about? Right. Um, I When I started, I was a part-time educator and I was the educator. Um, we had some great volunteers that would support me, but we were running field trips every single day of the year. And there's a, a certain point when capacity just is reached. And I couldn't host after-school programs because... I had met my hours already and I wasn't allowed to. <laughs> so a huge thing for us to be able to host more programs was growing our staff. And we luckily had some great donor and grant support to help that internal capacity grow and allowed us to now our education team has six people on it. And that means our capacity is huge and we don't have to say no when a partner reaches out. So we just had a partner reach out that they wanted to do an after-school program with us here in Montbello, which is where our offices are. Um, I'm not sitting at Bluff Lake right now. And we are able to say yes, because we have so many more educators that we can send into those classrooms. So I think that's really it. The demand was always there. People wanted to do programs. We just now can say yes. And that's really gratifying. And I think some of the areas we're really excited about growing are a lot of the out-of-school opportunities or non-traditional school opportunities. Bluff Lake hosts a forest preschool at our site. So that's for kiddos aged like two and a half to six, and they are outside all year round. And Bluff Lake is their classroom. And they have really great gear and they provide gear if you don't have it. And those kids are awesome and they just get to be outside all day, every day. And that's hosted by a partner of ours 
the Denver Forest School and they just use our site. But we just started last year um, a new program called the Outdoor Explorers Program. And it's in partnership with an organization called Alpine International Prep Academy. And it is for homeschool students to do forest school. So they sign up for a whole school year. And on Mondays, kindergarten and first graders come. Tuesdays is a different age group. And they come all day for the full school year. So it's giving these kids, homeschool students, who didn't have maybe that community feeling or a sense of ownership and place over a school space, the chance to come in, meet a bunch of other kids, work on a lot of those social skill building and being be outside and grow to love Bluff Lake. And we've seen a lot because of the pandemic, how school systems don't work for everyone. And traditional school is not what's best for a lot of kids, especially kids who are neurodivergent or have non-traditional learning styles. And homeschool can be a great answer for them. But they need support and they need community. And we're really excited to be able to provide that for them. So we're doing the program again this school year and we sold out. So we um, all the spaces are full. That program also is free because it's paid for by the state. So the state pays the tuition for the students, which is really great. And students who don't qualify for that because they're already participating in other homeschool programs, Bluff Lake has scholarships so that it can be free for the families. So I'm excited about those opportunities to grow when kids are coming and not just thinking about the traditional, just when somebody's science teacher wants to go to Bluff Lake. So that's an experience that I guess didn't necessarily catch me by surprise, but that I haven't really heard of many opportunities like that before. So how have you had to grow that opportunity? You said that this is your second year. So what were some of the surprises in bringing in these homeschooled uh, communities and working with them that you have right. that have helped you kind of grow your vision for this next year? Well, you might have remembered at the beginning, I said I liked informal education because we got the kids and then they went back to their school or back to their home. Um, this program is very different than that because we're building really strong relationships with these kids and um, our education team knows these kids so well. And so I think it's been a learning process for us to really strengthen our, not just how do we engage kids for a two hour chunk of time, but how do we deal with all of the emotional pressures that they're going through? How do we help them become better humans. Um, we've done a lot more training for our staff on uh, like child development and socio or social um, emotional learning and how to work with kids who are different from you. And these kids are coming from all different backgrounds, have all different beliefs. And so how do we set them up for success if we're kind of potentially one of the only exterior groups other than their parents that are getting to work with them because parents aren't coming with the kids. It's just the kids. So I think we didn't anticipate how much of a lift it was going to be for our team um, and draining for the team. So as the executive director, you know, I'm not facilitating every day, 
but I am there to support my team and to make sure that we have the funding we need to get them the trainings that they need. Um, we had a student who had been rejected from several other homeschool programs because she has a G-tube, um, which requires extra training for the staff to be able to know how to feed, do the feedings and stuff through the G-tube. Um, and so we paid for our team to all receive that training so that that student could come to our program. And luckily, there are a lot of great funders out there that are excited about opportunities like this. And again, that's my job and my development director to find all of those those funding opportunities so that we can provide these op- the experiences for the kids. That's absolutely amazing. And in talking about these experiences, I saw you had five different after-school programs that looked like, which caught me by surprise a little bit, because <laughs> that's so many opportunities for kids who aren't just interested necessarily in nature specifically, but might be interested in nature through a different avenue. Right. It gives them the chance to come and connect with the outdoors on their terms. So how did you grow all of those opportunities and how did you decide which ones were the best to provide? A big thing for us, especially through the pandemic, um, was realizing that other people know the community better than we do and that we have this wonderful site. We know the site very well, but we could host 10 programs and think, oh, well, this is what people want, Right. And no one would show up and we'd be baffled, like, it's free. It's on a Saturday. Why aren't people coming? But we didn't, we weren't thinking through all the barriers of why people aren't coming. So we started reaching out to more of our partner organizations who do have really deep relationships in the community and talking to them about like, hey, how could how could Bluff Lake help your programs? What's a partner program that we could run together? where you could bring your families to the site and we could facilitate activities, but that way, like you can help us choose the best time. We can make sure that the the family groups have exactly what they need and realizing too that, yeah, nature means different things for everyone and for different cultural groups, nature means something different. And for some cultures, they don't want a program where it's just one member of the family that goes. They really want a program where it can be multi-generational because that's how they function as a family unit is that grandma and baby are all there together. So how do we make programs that, you know, meet all of those needs? And we're by no way like there. We're not doing everything and meeting all of the needs of the community. But I think that's why we've gotten so much stronger is that we've started asking other people what they need a lot more than just, hey, I can make a cool craft and set up a table. And of course, kids are going to want to do it. So, And how do you approach developing those partnerships with those organizations? How do you, do they often approach you or do you look around and try to decide who you think would be best to bring in? It's a little of everything. I think some of our most successful partnerships have actually been that we found them from our funding organizations. So we maybe receive a grant from an organization and it's no longer, well, I don't know, I wasn't in the field 20 years ago, but it's not like 
these grantors give us money and we never talk to them. It's, hey, we're going to give you $20,000 and here are five other partners or people that we fund in your area that we think you could work well together. And so that's a great partnership for us because we're inclined to do it because it looks good for our funder. We also get to hear about other groups that we know maybe have funds Like they might tell us, yeah, we gave this organization $10,000 to pay for transportation. So they have that and you have a place and they help kind of match make. So a lot of our newer partnerships are related to that. Um, Others are proximity. We know that we can't serve everyone in the entire Denver metro area. So looking at who are the other groups in the Northeast metro area that we can partner with. Environmental Learning for Kids is here in Montbello, and they're a strong partner of ours, bringing families to the site. The Sand Creek Greenway I mentioned, Downtown Aurora Visual Arts. So lots of lots of other nonprofits who have similar missions to us. Um, maybe it's a staff member that used to work at one place and says like, hey, I know this place I used to work would love to do this program and they help connect us. So So are there are there any partners that you've developed a good working relationship with that kind of surprise you that you wouldn't have thought would have worked well with or not necessarily worked well with the nature center, but that your interests weren't necessarily aligned and it turns out you guys were actually perfect a perfect match. I think downtown Aurora Visual Arts is a good example of that because on the surface, a like ceramic studio where they're making all of this art and painting and doing photography um, and then a nature center might not seem like a great fit, but anyone who goes out into nature knows how inspiring it is and how it can bring ideas to these kids. So Some of the projects that we've worked on with them recently, we brought students, they were high schoolers, to the site. They did water quality testing, and they looked at those stormwater outfalls and all the trash that was coming in. They learned some about plastics and how it impacts our wildlife when there is plastic in the water. Um, And then they went and they visited several other places, too. It wasn't just us, but we were one of the sites They went back and then they had a whole exhibit featuring all different kinds of media, um, all about plastic and the impact of plastic on animals and habitats. So I we can serve as a great like living laboratory where it's not just we did do water testing with them, but that was kind of to show them the impacts. But it's also about that inspiration and just giving them a field experience that's different than just being in their studio. That's Um, absolutely fascinating. (laughs) So I'd love to kind of transition as we go through a little more into your specific role. And we've talked a lot about some of the smaller factors or not smaller factors, but some of the other factors you've played a big role in. But you also mentioned that you have this capital campaign to improve the site at Bluff Lake. That's a big part of your job right now. So I'd love you to kind of just share what this site improvement is going to be. Sure. So Bluff Lake, the visitation that we've seen, the growth is amazing. But we also know that we have this really special piece of land. It's 123 acres 
We have a lake, Sand Creek runs through it. There's really robust habitats. Uh, there's a wetland, prairie, and riparian habitats. And those things need protection and they need to be managed um, and maintained. And the number of people that we're currently having on site um, is, and also not having any facilities on site is making it hard to manage. So currently there's no utilities on site, no office. We have like a storage shed where we keep shovels and education supplies. Um, but our office is several miles away. And so when there's an issue on site, we have to travel over there. Or every day for summer camp, our staff is filling up three to five of those big igloo coolers full of water, like at their homes, and then bringing it to the site for the kids to be able to drink water while they're at camp. Um, there's a lot of reasons that we need to improve the infrastructure that's there. The infrastructure currently was all built in the 90s and early 2000s. So this project will uh, supply Bluff Lake with an actual building, um, which will have indoor classrooms, a lobby space, real bathrooms, not just porta potties, drinking fountains, and some admin space. We'll also have a fully new parking lot, which will have um, more spaces, but also just be a lot safer and more accessible with, you know, uh, sidewalks going around all the edges and more accessible parking stalls. And we're also redoing the ramp and stairs that goes down into the main part of the site because it currently doesn't meet ADA standards. Um, and so we're redoing that whole pathway to make it even more accessible to get to Bluff Lake. So all of these improvements together are, it's a huge project and it's something Bluff Lake has wanted to do for 30 years, basically, since we opened but has never had the capacity to do it because we were just trying to maintain our annual budget and keep all of our staff paid. But the growth that we've had in the last several years positioned us to be finally in that place where we could dream about something like this. And so we are fundraising now $7 million to build the building and um, the ramp and it's going really well. So what does this process look like from your perspective as executive director? What role do you play from the onset? I'm sure you were heavily involved in the planning and now you're uh, fundraising for it. And then as you propose and try to get the community on board, what has that process looked like for you? A little bit like... When I first took over as executive director, um, I've had lots of moments where I thought to myself, what business do you have doing any of this? Uh, you have no idea what you're doing. But we hired a development director who has had some experience with capital campaigns, so the fundraising side of it. Again, it was just about building the right team. So understanding that I have limitations as a human, as a mother, like I can't work 80 hour weeks. So our organization is hired a owner's rep that can kind of be the main li liaison. And then finding an architect and design team who is really mission aligned with us and we knew would understand what we were trying to do was really important. But 
a lot of what I'm doing is just kind of keeping everything together. Um, of course, I'm the one signing all the checks. So I'm making sure that everything that's coming in and out is matching with what I think it's supposed to be. And as you said, a huge part of this has been the community engagement. We did not want to just build something that our staff and board thought Bluff Lake needed. So we went out to the community and did a lot of outreach and engagement, interviews with community members, surveys, um, tabling events, where we were collecting feedback about how their site experience could be improved. And a big thing for us is that we never want this new building to be why people come to Bluff Lake. The site is still the star. The site is why people are there. This building is just to make their experience better. So it's to give them a drinking fountain when they're thirsty and to give kids when it starts suddenly snowing during their field trip, a place indoors that they can not freeze. So it's really about enhancing experience, not changing experience. Um, so that community engagement helped us do that storytelling and explain why we felt like it was necessary and it aligned really well with what the community wanted on our site. And we've continued the community engagement. Um, if you go to Bluff Lake, we have a huge wall that has where we are in the process and then a bunch of comment cards that people can fill out in English and Spanish. And right now it's got the concept designs. So people can look at exactly where the building's going to be, what the parking lot's going to look like, and give us feedback on so how it's going to be. I'd love to hear how a little bit how this might impact the wildlife management side of things. But the, so let's start there. But I do really want to get into what the education opportunities are going to be. But let's start with how does this impact wildlife management? Right. That has been a huge thing for us and something that a lot of our constituents are concerned about because they don't want to ruin Bluff Lake or to change Bluff Lake. Luckily, we Bluff Lake really has two distinct areas. There's this upstairs parking lot area, and then there that's about five acres. And then there's a downstairs area that is where the lake and the creek and all the trail system is. We are, um, this project will only be on that upstairs area. So most of the wildlife, most of all of the wetland habitat, uh, a majority of the birds, foxes, those are all down below. And while they will definitely be impacted by construction noises and dust and things like that, um, it's not that different than what they are experiencing on a daily basis by being nature in the city. Like these wildlife are living right along MLK. Um, there was road construction for several years recently. So it's not going to be like down in that habitat, but there will be habitat loss on part of the bluff as we build that new ramp. And that is mostly going to be a project for our natural resource team. We have great volunteers and ensuring that when we do the restoration of that area after construction, that we're being very mindful about what plants are there. How are we ensuring that it's not overrun by invasives um, and that we're able to establish these plants and get them rooted well. Um, so it, 
we're able to feel confident about it because we have such a strong team and great volunteers who have had this experience. One thing I like to point out to people is that Bluff Lake, when it was owned by the airport in the 90s and when it became a wildlife refuge, it was in pretty bad shape. And humans are the ones that came in and restored all of that habitat and planted and built trail systems so that people stayed on trails and really made it into the thriving habitat it is today. And we can do that again. And that this is a replicable model. It's not It's not always the story of humans destroying nature. Humans can also build nature. And yes, in an ideal world, we're not destroying nature and we're letting it be, but there are ways to fix it. It takes years of work and a lot of dedication but we feel really confident that we'll actually be able to make the habitat there a lot better by um, having more infrastructure to be able to take care of it. We'll be able to restore some areas like where the old ramp down into the site, we'll tear that out and that'll all be restored back into native habitat. So that's really exciting. And as I mentioned on that education side, it seems like you'll be able to provide even more. I mean, you're already providing so much, but even more with this access to the classroom um, and probably bring in more groups as well to give talks in that area. So mm-hmm. what are what are some of the areas where you're excited on growing that education side using the classroom? Yeah, I'm really excited to expand some of our adult programming. I think we do a lot of walks right now for adults, but being able to have a space that at night people could come in and listen to a talk or, you know, see someone's bird photos. Right now we're really limited to daytime hours that are good weather. And so that means mostly summer. Um, We do programs year round, but in the winter it can be really challenging and you never know what the weather is going to be like. So I'm excited to be able to expand programs and to have a backup option. For everything. So it's not always this like, oh my gosh, what if it pours rain during this program? Where are we going to go? And what's the experience going to be like? Um, We're going to have a lot more shade for people. So yes, we'll be able to expand our capacity because we'll have more places people can go. Right now, Bluff Lake kind of only has a few places that a group could go and eat their lunch or be together. And this will allow us to have more, but we're also very mindful of our site capacity. And the goal of this is not to have double our visitation. We don't want 150,000 annual visitors. We want more annual visits, maybe 100,000 annual visitors, but it's that the visitor experience is greatly improved, that we're giving them a better experience, not necessarily that um, we're yeah doubling the number of people that are coming. And what are you hearing when you do this community engagement where they're most excited about this project? Mostly bathrooms. Um, (laughs) It's amazing how people feel about porter potties. And I don't blame them because porter potties are rough to manage. Um, (laughs) We do our best, but I think people are really excited to not have to worry about those kinds of things. Because again, it's removing that barrier of 
access. Someone who is in a wheelchair and using a porta potty might be a very challenging experience for them. Um, will not have that like looming over them while they're at Bluff Lake. Um, there still will be porta potties down in the trail system, but upstairs you'll have access to real amenities. So that after doing all of our community engagement, like porta potties and drinking water were two of the most requested things. And then I think the next thing's really related to accessibility and safety. And right now our parking lot is adjacent to our programming space. And so um, like kids are running everywhere, everywhere in summer when we have 60 kids on site, it can be a little chaotic in the parking lot. So having more of a buffer between the parking lot and the building to allow kids to be kids and not expect them to understand what a parking lot is. Um, the community is really excited about that. So if people want to get involved with Bluff Lake uh, or just if somebody's listening to this in another state in another city who wants to get involved in their nature center, what as somebody who's running a nature center, an urban nature center, what are the volunteers that you need and what's right. the best way to get involved? So I volunteers are something for us that we rely on to be able to do our work. We serve so many people and would not be able to do it just with our staff. Um, at the same time, volunteers also, we put a lot into our volunteers because we want them to be fully trained and experienced and to know what they're doing. So I think we offer opportunities for like drop-in volunteer events and also group volunteer events like corporate things and if you have a group of people that you want to do a one-off thing with, that's great. And reach out to us. We always have trash that can be cleaned up around the trails. It's great when volunteers aren't picky about what they want to do. A lot of volunteers want to tree plant, um, but planting trees costs a lot of money. And it also isn't something we do lightly. We don't just plant trees all the time because trees need to continually be watered. And so being a volunteer with a really open mindset of I'm going to come in and do what's needed is really appreciated. Um, another thing I always like to recommend to people is to consider joining a board. Um, a lot of nature centers are run by nonprofits or by city government federal entities and have like a friends of this nature center board, um, board of directors. And there are committees and ways that you can get involved that involve a little bit more commitment on your time, of, of your time, but are great ways to help us make sure that we're engaging with the community in a really meaningful way. So think, think about joining a board, um, which provides skills that aren't just picking up trash or shoveling or something, but it's maybe you're really good at graphic design. I know every nonprofit needs help with graphic design. And so offer volunteering your services for different things than just what you would think of. That's great advice because I never really thought of the board or the graphic design side of that when it comes to a nature center. I'd also love to reinforce being willing to volunteer wherever, because mm -hmm. when I was, uh, I, got my start in conservation at the Santa Barbara Zoo as a volunteer. And while at the zoo, I got to do some really cool things. 
when we'd go and volunteer with the California condors, a lot of times we were doing things like trail building, mm-hmm. but they'd, they'd show us how they tracked condors. They'd take us to the best viewing spots. It'd be a really cool experience. But what we're actually doing out there is trail building, which was the most important thing they needed at that time. But it's not yeah. necessarily why you were getting involved. And so sometimes having a why, too, that you can bring into these volunteer experiences can really help. Yeah. And just think about, you know, the number of bodies that it takes to do something. And we can't have 100 people each planting a tree. And planting a tree doesn't take that long. So <laughs> if you want to have a volunteer event, what do you really want your impact to be? Why are you there? Um and usually it's because people really want care about the mission. And once they think about that, then they're like, yeah, I'm in for doing whatever. What do you need? So with all that in mind, I'd love to get your opinion on these last few questions. And these can be rapid fire or if you feel passionate about something, <laughs> take as much time as you want. And I'm going to be using conservation, but you can interpret it as environmental education as well if you prefer to go that route with your answer. But what part of conservation today needs our attention the most? I think thinking about conservation as more than just the big national parks and these big places that we think about um, traditionally, but also our parks and the areas that are within our city. So just expanding our definition of conservation and thinking about all the different places in nature that could be impacted. My master's thesis would not have been possible without Boyd Hill Nature Center so uh, or Nature Preserve. So, I mean, these local areas are so vital and the education impact to improve the or to uh, promote the people who are going to be making decisions tomorrow is just so vital. And so with that, what area of conservation do you want to see grow the most? A huge thing is the diversity in this field. Um, they, we know that having diverse mindsets and people f- coming from different backgrounds and perspectives make the best teams who make the best decisions because they're coming at things from lots of angles. So, so much of what we do is about that next generation. And that I want, I would love if the kids that are coming on field trips came and took my job um, and filled our board of directors. And so making sure that the opportunities are there for them and they're inspired and they have those moments where they're excited, um, that gives them the opportunity to want to go into this field. So I want, I'm really excited and I want that to grow is the diversity in the field. And I'd actually like to pause there a little bit because that is such an important part of our field right now today. What ways is an urban wildlife refuge able to help grow that diversity? Just by nature of who our neighbors are, we're able to help grow that, um, where Bluff Lake is, is in a part of Denver that has is very culturally diverse. We have neighbors from all different income levels. So it's a place where all of these folks are coming and just naturally intermingling, be, seeing each other on the trail system, um, and then getting jobs in the field. We think it's great when we have a summer camp counselor that grew up in the neighborhood surrounding us 
And then we have other some summer campers that can say like, oh, I see myself in the staff here at Bluff Lake. So it's really important to us that we are thinking about that and that the education teams that we're hiring are inspiring that next generation of kids. And so a lot of it, yeah, is proximity. It's also where we focus our time. You asked about partner organizations and how we choose which groups we want to work with because there are there's like an unlimited number of people that we could partner with. There's a million great organizations, but a lot of the ones we work with are working with students who they are from under-resourced neighborhoods and they maybe don't have a mountain home and aren't going up to the mountains. So it's about giving them the access and that's helped us really diversify who is going into this field. So this kind of ties in a little bit too. What concerns you about the future of conservation? Oof. Um, I think that there's, I, I'm trying not to just say things like climate change, because obviously those are, those are big things. But I think a lot of things are related to space and a place like Bluff Lake, if it wasn't in our property deeds and all of our documents saying that we were perpetually going to be a nature center, it would get developed um, because it's great real estate in the middle of Denver. And so I think getting rid of the concept of, or not getting rid of, but finding more ways to integrate nature into cities. And that's not something that people want to do because it's not a monetary benefit but the mental health benefits of having nature in cities is so huge. Um, and also this idea that we can fix things and repair them back into nature. And I guess I'm just concerned that we're going to continue putting nature into this, like nature and cities are different. They're two separate places. If you want to go into nature, you have to travel and go up into the mountains and we'll preserve those and those will be great. But here in the city, we don't care about that. Um, so. I don't have like an answer for. Oh, no, that's <laughs> no, that's I mean, it's so vital to help protect these areas. And on that note, what would be your advice to future conservationists or environmental educators? I think being really open to what nature means to communities and what how they want to use it. Um, like I said, I think a lot of communities view nature in different ways. It isn't always just a place that I go on a hike um, and that I want to walk six miles. It also might mean that I want a place that has a pavilion with shade that I can have my family picnic, but it's outdoors and in a nature space. So how can we really think about giving people the things that they need to be able to enjoy nature in a lot of different ways and breaking down a little bit of like stop thinking about just the traditional ways of enjoying nature. Um, and I think I encourage future generations to um, diversify what it means to be a conservationist. Like I, I have no background, scientific background or biology bi background, but can get very passionate about these things kind of because of that reason. Like I, I love nature because of a lot of the mental health benefits and the artistic benefits and the inspiration that I take from it, um, not because I can identify every plant that's there. So 
Yeah. And you don't have to just work for the National Park Service to be in <laughs> the nature field. There are a lot of ways to be involved and a lot of skill sets that are needed other than just being a natural resource technician or a wildlife biologist. And there's actually a, two things I want to highlight from that. The first is when I was doing my master's in conservation, I really realized that if you don't prioritize the human component of conservation, you're not really going to get very far. And I'm sure that plays a huge role at Bluff Lake being located where you are, that you really need to prioritize the human component in conservation. Definitely. We can't just pretend that humans aren't going to come to Bluff Lake. So a lot of our conversations are, you know, do we need to build a new trail here because this is there's social trails going all over in this area. But clearly that means people want to be over here. And and maybe that's because there's nowhere that they can see the creek um, on this side of the property. So understanding that we have to work with the human element. It's not people versus nature. It's like we are we need to educate people so that they don't leave the trail, but then give them a space that they can access uh, what they want to see. That's awesome. And then you also mentioned kind of the fact that you don't have that conservation uh, environmental background per se, but transitioned over. And one of the things you sent me that I thought was really powerful was everybody says right place, right time. You said right person, right place, right time. I'd love to end with you kind of just expanding on what you really mean by that. Yeah. So that was a little in my about describing my career path as my my jobs have I always kind of I've fallen into them because it was a great opportunity and because I had set myself up to be a person that people could call on in maybe a moment of crisis. Oh no, we don't have an executive director anymore. And it's not to say that you should work 80 hour weeks so that they see you as the person that's going to work an 80 hour week, but it's about showing up every day and put, giving your all to the organization and working for places that you really care about and want to do that. Um, not selling out and selling your soul. I love working for nonprofits and I, I really believe in what we do. Um, and I am excited and happy that I was able to be the right person to be there at that time to take the opportunity. And that's a great note to end on. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for sitting down and talking with me today. Yeah, thanks, Sean. <laughs>